Welcome to the Brand Spanking New Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Adams. As of this glorious Monday morning, Alabama decides to stalk its fans and penalize them for not caring about playing junior high schools from Birmingham. The Patriots had no idea their new star wideout was inflated to 14.526 PSI of hot air, and a triple crown winning horse should probably change his pop culture name from Justified to Breaking Bad. But we begin with the three most important things that rocked our world and changed our perspective over the past seven days, or more specifically, the best of last week. First, football is in full swing with all the drama, violence, and controversy surrounding it. As much fun as it would be to talk about Pete Carroll chewing gum like a donkey with gingivitis on his 68th birthday, or the number of times Michigan State was mistaken for a dancing class of dyslexic toddlers, let's talk about the embarrassing elephant in the country, that being the weakest Power 5 division in college football, the ACC. The ACC, or what most of you call the Atlantic Cupcake Conference, is the proud owner of the current national champion, Clemson. The Tigers, led by Dabo Sweeney, a Baptist preacher injected with Joke Cola in his veins, have won two of the last three titles and are already being anointed as the odds-on favorite to win this year as well. That's all great news for a program tucked away into the southern charm of South Carolina, but the glaring red flag Clemson has surprisingly avoided during their reign is that the conference they play in is without question the most pathetically weak division in college football. Take, for instance, yesterday's slate of games across the ACC. At first glance, teams in their conference win an average 7-7, seven and seven, which to any ho-hum sports fan would pass off as nothing very significant. However, looking more closely at those numbers indicate a much more alarming issue. Three of those seven losses were bad. And when I use the term bad, I mean it in the sense that these losses are the equivalent to someone getting caught doing the walk of shame from Roseanne's casita. NC State lost by 17 points to West Virginia, a team who has only scored 20 points so far this entire season. Boston College lost to grass-munching Les Miles in Kansas, a school more proud that a Buffalo Wildlings got put in their city rather than they are of their football program. And Georgia Tech lost at home to the Citadel? That's right, the Citadel. Heck, one of their wins looked just as terrible as Virginia Tech barely squeaked by Furman University at home. Just for perspective, there are more employees on staff with Virginia Tech's athletic department than there are actual students attending Furman. True story. The point is, the ACC is bad. Ridiculously bad. And while, yes, Clemson may be dominating each and every week, waltzing their way to a national title, it's really not that difficult to do this when their weekly competitors are paying smaller schools half a million dollars to embarrass them on their own fields. Second, the U.S. men's national basketball team lost two out of three games to finish seventh in the FIBA World Cup, their worst finish in the history of international competition. While the tournament ended with a thumping of Poland on their final day in China, the win, however, was overshadowed by the two losses to France and Serbia. Serbia's coach, by the way, stirred a little controversy before the tournament, saying about the U.S. team, If we meet, may God help them. The seventh place finish ignited a discussion about the state of U.S. men's basketball and whether the U.S. has finally been lapped by its global competitors. Head coach Greg Popovich ripped critics for this analysis, arguing that the media is constantly looking for someone to blame, saying, they play the shame game, like we should be ashamed because we didn't win a gold medal. That's a ridiculous attitude. It's immature, it's arrogant, and it shows that whoever thinks that doesn't respect all the other teams in the world and doesn't respect that these guys did the best they could. First, he's right. For people to get upset that the U.S. played poorly is a petty dig at U.S. men's basketball. Let's get something straight. This was the FIBA World Cup. 
FIBA to United States men's basketball has the same value as Weight Watchers does to Augustus Gloop. We all know that chocolate muncher from Dusseldorf doesn't give two Hershey's kisses about Oprah Winfrey's most infamous diet fad. While the majority of the discussion centered around the seventh place finish, the larger issue at hand is this. Why is Serbia talking trash about a non-relevant basketball tournament? That's like Captain Planet boasting about winning a mini golf tournament in Poughkeepsie. Come on, CP, we all know you've got more important things to do in and for this world. Serbia needs to take a deep breath and count to 10 before picking irrelevant fights. I guess when the three biggest things to evolve from your country are A, raspberries, B, the word vampire, and C, the debate as to whether a 5,000-foot-tall mound of dirt known as Mount Rattan is either a landscape gem or a pyramidical mothership left behind by some aliens half a billion years ago, then yeah, we get why the biggest victory in your hemisphere is a five-point win for fifth place in a meaningless exhibition. And finally, Rory McIlroy was voted PGA Player of the Year by his peers, which, through the eyes of fans, analysts, and even McIlroy himself, was shocking, as most held the belief that Brooks Kepka was much more deserving of the award. On paper, one could argue that McIlroy had the better year, winning three tournaments and finishing in the top 10 14 times out of 19 starts. However, he was abysmal where it mattered the most, never being a legitimate contender for a major and not even making the cut at his home course in Ireland at the Open Championships. Kepka, on the other hand, contended just as much as McElroy and even won this year's U.S. Open. However, as these results indicate, Kepka was perceived to be a jerk to his fellow players day in and day out. Kepka was the guy who wears white sunglasses, true religion jeans, and pulls into the clubhouse in an F-350 with a lift yelling, I'm from Georgia, you got a problem with that? Looking at his physique, he's a man who eats, breathes, and lives by protein shakes and skips leg days in order to work on another set of bicep curls. While the last year of Kepka's career is scattered with confrontations, including a shoving match on the Ryder Cup jet with teammate Dustin Johnson and a verbal spat with Bryson DeChambeau about taking 90 minutes to line up a putt, it's hard to disagree that Kepka was a better player than McElroy. But at the same time, does golf, a prestigious and elegant sport, something only the truest of gentlemen play, want to honor a man whose go-to motto in life is, do you even lift, bro? I doubt it. We now shift to what matters this week, which involves what Pinterest describes as someone who pees glitter, poops cupcakes, and farts rainbows. And no, we're not talking about a conversation that My Little Pony has with their gastroenterologist. We're talking about divas, specifically those in sports. Now you may say, Brock, I didn't download this podcast to hear a narcissistic comparison of who played a more believable version of themselves, Whitney Houston in The Bodyguard or Lady Gaga in A Star Is Born, and that's completely justified. But the reality is, divas are a large part of the sports landscape and heavily influence how we as fans perceive their image and their legacies. So today, let's unpack what divas are, how they behave, and what this means for professional sports as a whole. First, divas in sports are not a new phenomenon that we're suddenly seeing thrust upon us. They have been around since before Utah was officially recognized as a state. We've had some prime examples birth, such as Ty Cobb and his seductive lingerie photo shoots showing some serious ankle action for the New York Post, tennis legend John McEnroe and his alternate career as a leading actor in the film Mermen, and of course Russell Westbrook's fashion faux pas on the runway with Derek Zoolander. You could have pulled a bit harder for the win there, Russ. We all know Derek can't turn left. Divas have been and always will be a staple in the sports landscape, and there are no signs of this dissolving anytime soon. 
The central idea behind the diva mentality is that they feel they are the most important, most valuable, most recognizable presence known to humanity, and that we as minions are not worthy to be sharing the same oxygen molecules with them. They are on levels above and beyond the average human's capability of understanding. In some veins, they're right. We as fans will never be able to do things as spectacular, such as averaging a triple-double in the NBA, or naturally breaking the home run record through no assistance of performing enhancing drugs whatsoever. However, the problem exists when the diva mentality shifts to behavior off the field where they are just as normal as everyone else. Take, for instance, former Dallas Cowboy star Michael Irvin, who played one of the highest saturated diva positions in all of sports, the wide receiver. Aside from Hall of Fame legends Jerry Rice, Larry Fitzgerald, Julio Jones, and Calvin Johnson, a man who ironically is nicknamed Megatron, one of the most diva-ish toys of the 1980s, the wide receiver position is chock full of divas, from Randy Moss to Terrell Owens to Des Bryant to Deshaun Jackson to a man who changed his last name to the Spanish translation of his number to Keyshawn Just Give Me the Ball Johnson. Need I go on any further? Back in 1998, Irvin walked into the team's grooming office to get his weekly haircut and saw that the chair was occupied by then-offensive lineman Everett McIver. Irvin repeatedly yelled out the word, Seniority! But McIver remained seated, refuting that he didn't owe Irvin that type of respect as he had been in the league for five years. This aggravated Irvin to the point where rather than wait his turn like any civilized person would do, or even toss back a verbal slur-filled response as NFL players often do, instead, he went all brick from Anchorman, grabbed a pair of scissors, and jammed them into the neck of MacGyver, missing his carotid artery by inches. Um, I've been meaning to talk to you about that incident, Michael. Find yourself a safe house, or a relative close by. Lay low for a while, because you're probably wanted for murder. Irvin's example is just one of many littering the NFL, from Johnny Manziel posting intoxicated pictures of him prairie dog and inflatable swan, to Rex Ryan bragging about his wife getting a tattoo of their then-first-round draft pick Mark Sanchez in a Jets jersey, to Tom Brady cursing out a pool store owner for having to pay extra money for a specific color of pool cover, to Jerry Jones building a glorified pyramid to himself in the middle of Arlington where he will be buried at midfield, to Des Bryant cursing at reporters for actually calling him a diva, saying that they can't use the D word to describe him. Yes, Des, telling someone they don't have the right to call you a diva is the pure definition of what a diva is. You're only reinforcing the statement upon yourself. All of these things have happened, and trust me, even more ridiculous diva acts will only continue every single season in every single sport. Which brings us to this. Divas exist because we as a population feed their frenzy. We click on their profiles and aggrandize their images via social media. We ogle over their drama on daytime sports shows only to inflate their ego larger than Barbara Streisand's nose. Should we be shocked? No. We have created this with breaking TMZ reports and viral posts about Antonio Brown being released from his team. Sadly, as much as we ridicule the diva syndrome, we as consumers are only fueling its fire. And we love it. One of the marquee franchises currently airing on HBO is the hit show Big Little Lies, which ironically is centered around divas. Literally, the plot is focused on the interaction of divas and the diabolical tools they use to climb the figurative ladder to conceited glory. The show is arrogance and pompous behavior, gift wrap in a hoity-toity bow, and served on a plate only the one percenters can so emphatically enjoy. It's the kind of artistic beauty only people like Cher can truly appreciate. Now don't get me wrong, the show is addicting, 
and it sucks you in quicker than animal-style French fries at In-N-Out. I never thought in my adult life I would want to have a water cooler discussion debating whether Reese Witherspoon was totally justified in what she wore to the PTA meeting in season two. As comedic as this sounds, Big Little Lies epitomizes our modern day society. We love attention. We love adoration. We love people gloating over us. And if we're going to spend hours watching shows about how we want our lives to be like in the elitist town of Monterey, California, we had better be prepared when football players stab each other in the neck over a haircut. Divas are locked in and here to stay. So sit back, have Renata's nanny pour you another glass, hold on to your butt, and enjoy the narcissistic, egotistical joyride that will only get more entertaining in the years to come. Thank you for listening to Brand Spanking New. We'll definitely be back next week. Unlike New Orleans Saints fans, which after the third straight gaffe of NFL officiating they endured yesterday, I wouldn't either.